0: All right. <clears throat> Let's begin. Let me open us in prayer, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and we pray that as we look at your church and its history, that you would guide our thinking and give us wisdom to um, to see and hear things, otherwise we couldn't, um, and to um, more importantly see your. Uh, providential hand throughout the course of the ages um, to do what you've promised to do, which is to call a people to yourself and to purify and grow that people um, as your kingdom. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Okay, so last week we looked at the first, uh, really the second 500 years. We started at about 351, I think. Um, so we did a little more than 500 years. We get to the third 500 years here, and as you see there, on your quote first quote, uh, the Dark Ages, hardly, by far, the most dynamic, fascinating age of church history, Ryan Moore. Um, I, I do think, uh, and any of y'all that studied history, um, I, I've been convinced more than anything that this is, this is, you know, we, we live in a pretty good age now, but this is, like, stuff was happening here that um, was just unprecedented. And, and as far as the reach that, it, I mean, we we're still dealing with the fallout of all this stuff in good ways and in bad Uh, But, but, but as far as doctrines that were formalized, as far as just the, the interests of, of events, uh, possibly, I don't know if you get your arms around this one, possibly more entertaining than uh, a Trump election. I don't know Uh, that, that is so in this 500 years. So uh, let me, well, first we gotta, we gotta draw our map, right? So let's do that. And this, I don't know, Greece is somewhere there, and then Palestine, and then we'll come over here. Africa. I mean that's Spain. What's what? What's what? Yeah. The boot the boots <coughs> your reference point. <coughs> Greece. Constantinople's up here, Rome's here. This is Pal actually, no, Constantinople's right there. Palestine is uh, and you know, Israel's here. And then you have this, and then Africa, Morocco. this is Spain. this is oh, I got to do better than that. Let's, let's kind of block that off, and that's worse. I just made it worse. so um, okay, so we're going we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. Let me do this first. Uh, let me just give you the overview of this 500 years, and then we'll kind of uh, dive in a little bit more in detail. So what is going to govern our our discussion here in 1040? Five is the the east, the east and west division. Okay, and that's also known as the Great Schism, which we love to say that word schism in church history. And uh, we'll talk about what that was and the events leading up to that. But this is this is what's been building, and the Crusades are going to solidify this division between. What we know now is today has really become the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, and then the West has become, well, the West, the Western Western Christianity. Okay? Um, <clears throat> one of the benefits that came out of the Crusades, actually, um, as, as certainly one of the darkest periods in church history, is the gospel going to Russia. We'll note that. In 1453, Constantinople, which is here, uh, again, not drawing the scale, uh, will fall to Muslim uh, invasion, and that will also solidify Rome as the center, the center, if you will, of Christianity, the center of the world, center of the West, and um, and, and and in many ways, diffusing the East-West controversy. All right, so what, what about the Roman Catholic Church at this point? So you see their overview, 30,000-foot f- view here. <clears throat> this is the big picture of, of all that is sort of everything that's being dealt with here. At this, at this stage in the game, you have uh, this great diversity of life, and by that... You just you have a picture uh, and i I put down there some of you all had to read the Canterbury Tales by Jeffrey Chaucer, and one of the unique things about this book is it gives you a very uh detailed vision of all of the diversity of life as these people are making this pilgrimage to this funeral um, and it gives us a real good historic uh, look <clears throat> at what life was like and and what what were the occupations what what were <clears throat> what were what were, what were the status symbols and all the, all the stuff that would go into the culture of of life at this time? So it kind of sets the tone there for, for the diversity of life. Uh, you will have an ongoing struggle with Islam, which, uh, interesting enough, is not too hard for us to understand at this point in time. As uh, late as 1490, uh, one historian, uh, Kenneth uh, Scott... Uh, Lateret says says as late as fourteen ninety it would have seemed that in the eight centuries old struggle between the cross and the crescent the latter was on the way to final triumph. Uh, that is very much the the state of these five hundred years uh, wondering um, if, if Christianity is even going to continue um, <clears throat> which underscores the importance of it going to Russia uh, if you continue to, to, to investigate the history in that in that arm of uh, church history. Uh, you have a thing called the investiture controversy. And this is uh, what dominates the political scene. This is who has more authority, the Pope or the King. And so, you know, you've got to spend tons of time understanding. We, we kind of dove into it last week a little bit. But that's what's going to drive the 500 years and the politics and all of the just <clears throat> the church being in bed with the emperor and and who is selling out to who and and. Um, it's just going to create this perfect cocktail of uh, heresy and um, loving the world over Scripture, and there's going to be people that are to come through and try to reform this, but they're going to get taken out. You know, power's going to win out, um, greed's going to win out, and it just is slowly and slowly distorting God's church throughout the ages, specifically its doctrine. Um, or at least the visual component of that. Maybe, maybe I should put it that way. This is what people perceive of the church. It's, it's nothing more than a puppet for the king and vice versa. Um, that's the investiture controversy. Theologically speaking, theology is considered and called the queen of the sciences of this age. Uh, I don't know if it still holds that title today, but you have uh, people like Anselm there uh, uh, developing cosmological and ontological understandings of God, which very much deeply impact the way we understand God today. You have uh, Thomas Aquinas, otherwise known as the dumb ox, and his summa, uh, which was never finished, but um, we we are products of Thomas Aquinas, whether you call yourself Catholic or not, due to his systematic theology and his brilliance, his mind. Uh, We don't subscribe to everything that he obviously wrote, but certainly one of the major figureheads of theology at this time. Uh, scholasticism becomes uh, part of the, the, the fabric of society, and by scholasticism, theology becomes um, this sort of academic thing. You can go to school now to study theology, and uh, we see there that um, uh, um, we go down the culture, the rise of the universities, that the monasteries begin to be the first places to start up schools and universities, and um, and then this becomes a, a, an opportunity, a thing that, that you can now go to school. You can study law. You can study theology. And you can you know, do these types of things to um, further your you know, livelihood or to uh, have profession in, in that regard. But the, the more important part is, is that people are actually able to go to a place and study and think about theology in a way that they never have before. So uh, that's happening. And um, and then also, this is the this, the age of the church where we get these wonderful uh, architectural displays of cathedrals and literature. And I note there, Dante's Divine Comedy comes out uh, somewhere in the 14th century there. So that's the landscape. That's kind of uh, a broad brush, the 30,000-foot view of what, what it is that, all that is going on in this 500 years. And you can begin to see uh, why it is that this is probably one of the most exciting dynamic, fascinating, I'll quote Ryan Morgan, you know, aspects of church history. Um, so, so let us then pause there for a moment and come back up here, and let's talk a little bit about this East and West controversy and, and the schism itself and, and, the, and how the Crusades begin to solidify this. And so um, so if I recall in a little bit, when we ended last week, we noted um, a lot of the things that were being created that were, were causing division here Mainly, uh, basically, it's just kind of who's more important. And the East was always more important, was always the center hub of of the church. And and, and what's happening here <clears throat> is that uh, there becomes more uh, authority with armies and, and kings, and, and the West is growing. Okay, so that's kind of, you know, force is going to win out here in one sense. Uh, it's going to become more of a, of a deal. Um, you have geographically speaking, I know you may not be able to see it with this map, but you just have this division here because um, Islam is going to come up here. Muslims are going to come out here. And it's, and it's, and it's essentially going to cut off the east and the west from each other. And to put it more specifically, and this gets to the Crusades, <clears throat> the west is going to be like, sure, we'll send some men. And they, they do, but they don't. And Constantinople will fall, and there, there was a lot of just a lot of bitterness and hatred over what the Crusades really produced and what they didn 't produce that immediately drew the line between these two churches theologically speaking there 's a lot of big differences you 're probably most familiar with the doctrines of icons versus the East and the West, and what that means is the the East um, thought having icons, which would be uh, anything from you know Pictures, paintings of saints, even Jesus, uh, in the church and then having them being part of worship as, as a good part of, of worship. Because for them it was, this is how we begin to appreciate the incarnation. We're not saying this is Jesus, but these visual aids help us to understand what the, carnation is, the incarnation is really about. Okay? The West would have none of it. Um, that was a violation of the second commandment. And you have these type of theological divides that have been going on um, as to what is important what isn't important. And you still have that today. Um, So, um, so so theologically speaking, absolutely. The Crusades start out, um, and I'll read the motives there. You have the recovery of the Holy Land, you have the... Uh, re, uh, reunification of the East and the West, and personal salvation, ambition, and adventure. In other words, <clears throat> I think it was um, <clears throat> wasn't. It, oh, I should have wrote his name down. I forget the Pope who who came over and started this. But the whole point was, I think it was in France. Actually, um, there was this big uh, you know, big push to say, look, we are being overtaken by the religion of. Of, of, of Islam, of Muslims, we need to, you know, we need to fight back, okay? So we can all get behind that. Um, if you come with me and fight, right? This is the, I will promise you salvation. If you die in that fight, I'll promise you that your sins will be forgiven upon your death, okay? This is part of the, the incentive as well. Um, <clears throat> also with that, uh, as you see, um, is that we need to recover this Holy Land. It has been taken over by a, by a false god, by foreign religions, and we need to come and take that over. Will you send your forces? And by forces, we have knights, we have all these things that emperors have set up at this point. Will you send your men to come over here and fight this holy war for us? All right, here's the, ra- ba- the, 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 uh, the battle cry. And Pope comes back home to Constantinople, waiting, waiting, waiting. And what he gets essentially are just like the worst of the worst of uh, these uh, men who would come over on horseback and just are there to pillage and plunder, um, to, to, to rape and destroy not just the Muslim culture, but also the Christian culture as well. It is awful. There are seven crusades, I think, uh, totaling out those years. There was even a child crusade where they actually sent their kids to go in and fight. Um, it's, it, is, it is certainly a stain on the pages of church history. Um, as I look at the results, disaster. Uh, this sealed the divide between the East and the West. Uh, founding of new orders such as the Knights of the Temple or Templars, etc. came out of this. Brief recovery of the Holy Land did did happen, but would later fall bitterness between Muslims, Christians, and Jews for ages to come. So we are certainly still <coughs> experiencing the fallout of that um, of that age. Now there were a lot of voices who obviously were against this and just saying, what if we had approached this in a different way? What if we had offered uh, forgiveness and we had offered, um, you know, a different type of of resolution? And um, certainly what the crusade started out to be was never looked anything like what it actually did. And um, you just basically set loose a bunch of a bunch of um, opportunists who say, I'm in a new land and I have I'm stronger than you and I'm going to take this over. I'm going to do what I want. Um, so that, that's a very rough overview of the Crusades. Um, but you can see the damage that it had done. And then, at that point on, from, from that point on throughout history, you will continue to have two divisions of the church fighting over who's the, who, who has the real authority to assign popes, who has the, the real authority, who is the real line of Paul, would be another discussion of that. Okay? Um, so, yeah. Any comments on that brief discussion of the Crusades? And Did, did they have, back in those days, did they have the desecration of uh, Christian holy sites like they do nowadays, where they you know uh, tear down churches and, and uh, that kind of thing? Was that going that on with the Muslims back then? It, yes, it was. Um, there's actually, I'm sure about the picture. Um, and, and both and, like, I don't even know, if, I, don't, I don't want to call them Christians, but... I mean, they were, destru- they were destroying all kinds of stuff. Everybody was destroying stuff. Uh, but there's, there's a, there's, oh, I, I'm gonna miss the name on it. Um, near Constantinople, but there's, there's a. What you'll see happen is there's, there'll be a cathedral there, and the Muslims will come in, and they won't necessarily tear it down. They tear it down most, they'll tear down most of them, but the ones that are really nice and good, they'll, they'll, they'll turn them into mosques. So there's this one, and I guess I showed a picture of it. It's in, yeah, the sorry. Yeah, I think that is it. Yeah, the wisdom, wisdom, Sophia Wisdom. That's what it is. Thank you, class. You all did your reading. Okay, no. No, that's what it is. And so it started out as this beautiful cathedral, and now they they put, I forget what you call, uh, yes, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, I've shared the example of the one that we saw in Spain um, down in um, Cordoba, the Mesquita, which was uh, originally a Christian cathedral. It got overtaken by Muslims. They turned it into this, they, they expanded it into this mosque. It wasn't this cathedral yet. There was a, it was a church, but then they made this beautiful mosque, and it's one of these... Uh, I mean, it's, you just got to see it, right? It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful structure. Um, and then the, the, um, the, the, the Reconquista, I guess the Spaniards come in to re, retake the land and drive the Muslims out, and they turn the, the Mosquito, they turn the mosque into a, a cathedral, not by destroying the actual mosque, because it was so beautiful to them. And I'm glad they didn't destroy it for the sake of just history and viewing it. But they built a cathedral right out of the middle of it. And um, there's other things to say about that. But uh, that's that's a lot of what would happen. So a lot of it was destroyed, but a lot of it was preserved or either just turned into um, you know, churches for your own personal preference. So if a Muslim will turn it into a mosque, if a Christian will turn it into a cathedral. So yeah question. Anything else? Okay, so this is um, East and West, the big schism. Um, As we mentioned, uh, one of the bright things that will happen at this point is the gospel will move up into Russia, and that will become huge later on. Um, As we move through here, and look at I want to move down to the reform movements here. So, you see that the, the in the, under the category of the papacy, uh, Gregor, Gregor, Gregorian reform, if I'm saying that right, this is Gregory the Great, we looked at last year, or last week, last year, last week. He uh, would introduce, and by reformed here, this isn't necessarily the reform that you might think of, these are just changes, right? So he was the one that brought in, uh, for example, uh, clerical celibacy, and so... The reason why I'm mentioning this is also later on in 1215, you'll see transubstantiation becomes a part of the church doctrine, as well as annual confession. And what that meant was you had to come to particular, do a particular pilgrimage, and come to a particular place um, in order to have uh, sins repealed and those kinds of things. And so what you what you begin to see throughout throughout this 500 years are these the building of these extra things. That are being added to the gospel, and I, and to to give it a fair shake. Remember, last week we said the question wasn't so much at this point how is salvation given to us; it's it's how how do we live this life? How do we maintain? How do we maintain it? How do we um, respond to it? And so there are, in some senses, like there, there's a, there's some good here in, in how we uh, put in practices in our life to you know to show our gratitude or to maintain this salvation, to, to live this out, I guess. Um, but but you know, they become the most important part, uh, as opposed to what those things are supposed to point to, if that makes sense. So <clears throat> the, the gospel of grace and of faith and of Christ takes a back seat to the practices and the confessions and the, um, and the indulgences and those kinds of practices that are being put in place here and now. And mostly, I should say, by, by people who don't even subscribe to the faith. I mean, so when we get into um, the history of England and, and all the, the fighting and the wars and all that kind of stuff that goes on in this 500 years, I mean, you're dealing with people who could care less about Jesus or are just here as a figurehead, and we need more money, so let's start charging. We can get more money out of these indulgences, and it's just all corrupt and corrupt. That you can kind of see where this goes. So uh, those, are, those are two major reforms that happened in this period uh, with, uh, are from the, from the Pope, from the papacy, and uh, things that, that are still, well, at least transubstantiation is still um, part of Catholic doctrine. And just to be clear about that, that is the view of the Lord's Supper that the bread becomes the actual body of Christ and the blood becomes the actual blood of Christ. And so, So the bread becomes the body, the actual body, the blood becomes, or the wine becomes the blood. And um, uh, the Reformers are going to have a big problem with this um, because the Bible has a big problem with this, right? Uh, This is is in one sense saying that we are sacrificing Jesus over again for you when Jesus sacrifices once and for all. We're also claiming to have a large, large uh, amount of power in that only the ordained Pope can... Actually, transform the elements into the body and blood of Christ, which is the only thing that can resolve your sin. So you see what happens here. <clears throat> so big, big, big changes. Um, you have these uh, orders. You have the old order and you have the new order. So we talked about the Bene- Benedictine monks last week. Well, I don't want to say last year, but last week. We talked about the rule, which was the the rule of life, and this was a good thing. Okay, this is there, there were there were a lot of good things that came out of this out of the, the um uh, out of um uh, the the old order, if you will. Um, but of course we had the tendency to distort good good things. The new orders are the Dominican and Franciscan monks. Um, you might be familiar with St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, some of you all are readers of history, and he would come out of uh, or develop you know, what we know as Franciscan monks. And his, his, um, his focus was on poverty and, and service. So, you know, you still kind of held to the rule. You didn't own possessions. Um, but we're not just going to go off into some, you know, isolated place. We're actually going to help people out. And this, this, this did wonders for the faith. In view of all the hypocrisy that was going on. So you had people that were this was a huge, huge thing for for the church uh, at this time to see people do this um, and to serve in this way and to be the tangible hands and feet of Jesus uh, for the church in this way. Uh, Dominic, who would be who would later, you know, people would be considered uh, Dominican um, monks. He was a Spanish monk, as you see there. and uh, you see there, quote, How could Catholics evangelize and regain heretics? This was kind of his question. So uh, there was a, a began, you began to have this thought and this theology of, uh, we want to care about the lost. And so how can we do that? How can we not just you know, try heretics, if you will, but how can we actually begin to win them over? And um, so they stressed what? The preaching and the teaching of the Word. And this was the conversion was going to happen through the power of God's word, and this is what was going to be this is what's going to be our focus. And So, if, I had to, if we had to raise our hands, we might find more leanings with the Dominican monks than we do with the uh, Franciscan monks. But um, I digress. Mon- monastic life does little to change the moral heroism of the Middle Ages. Um, as good as the, the monastic lifestyle was and the things that it brought about, it had its flaws. And at the end of the day, when you look at the, this 500 years, um, it injects beautiful moments of the true church. And, and by, by true church, I mean it's called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. But at the end of the day, it does little to reform and bring about moral change on, on a grand level. Um, the monasteries become, become polluted as well. And, you know, it's just, it's just, again, like anything else, what's true, what's not. So, um, and this gets us to the heretics, where I want to spend the most of our time. And I put that in quotation because these are heretics to the Catholic Church. But they're known as pre-reformers. And uh, one of the things that surprised me the most when I first um, looked at church history was that the Reformation of 1521 that Luther started, um, it did not start there, believe it or not. Most of you are aware of that. If you're not, I'm, I'm glad that you're going to hear about these men who most of them were martyred and died. But this 500 years was literally how long it took for what we now celebrate in 1521 to happen. So like anything else, we we are usually standing on the shoulders of somebody else. So I want to look at those because I want you to be aware of these men, and I want you to see the cost. I want you to see what, um, what those who have gone before you have given up so that you can have a Bible in your hand so that you can come this morning to worship, right? Okay, so uh, the first there are the Waldensians, Peter Waldo. And I'm not sure if that's where we get where's Waldo or not, but um, he, uh, he, he he said it's better to obey God than men. And uh, the Waldensians were constantly throughout many, many, many uh, centuries um, sort of a, a fly in the ointment for the Catholic Church because they would... They would be this voice that wouldn't get a lot of traction, but we're like basically saying we do not agree with your interpretations of scripture, your use of power, and so a lot of a lot of these men were were, were and, and women and, and families were were driven out, were were persecuted, were put to death, but the Waldensians become the first group of people who began to start saying something about this. And you actually have history recording the first Reformation starting in the 12th century here, as the Waldensians opposed the Catholic views of Scripture and the sacraments. So they rejected transubstantiation, trans- uh, and they rejected uh, that the Scripture was something, if you, if, you, if you know this or not, Scripture in the Catholic Church at this point was only available to those who would, could go to school, could learn the languages, and read it themselves. The printing press is not developed at this point. And um, um, ironically, in God's providence, the printing press is developed right just before the Great Reformation, which was huge in getting the word out to the people, not to mention to put the Bible in the vernacular of the people, which was against Catholic doctrine. So... Th- Right. It, kept, it kept
1: happening. Right.
0: I don't know whether that's simplistic, but that's the way I felt as a child when I knew my Catholic parents. Right. You, I, I, some people would say, it's easy to see that and say, you, I mean, y'all are in a... We're all... Um, what's the word? Um, we're all at the, the mercy of those who have the power and authority. I would say it, being on this end of it, uh, I don't want that type of isolation. Right, I have no accountability. I don't want that. Like the the reason I am a part of a denomination is because I want the accountability of people saying, "Ryan, what are you teaching? Um, what are you what are you telling your people?" And uh, so, looking at this, for me to walk into a room and be like, you know, to 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 to, to have the authority to make this really say whatever I want to scares me to death, um, and. Um, and for many it was, oh, this is perfect because uh, I can manipulate people as, as I want to. Um, I, should, I should just be clear, that doesn't mean every single pope reader of Scripture was manipulating. And you know, there, were, there are faithful men and women in this age that we will be with in glory, uh, but just as a whole we tend to see the destruction of the church eroding away in this way. Let me ask this question: um, Why would the Church, Catholic Church, have a big problem with the Waldensians rejecting transubstantiation? So let's practically work that out. A okay. Yeah, I was trying to figure out the question. Sorry. Think, yeah. Remember what we said about what transubstantiation is. Yeah. All right. So if we do, if, we, if I disagree with you about that, that means I don't have to what. Yeah, I don't have to go to you for this, essentially. And if I don't have to go to you for this, then you no longer have power over me. You no longer have this authority over me. All right? It would be like Darwin getting up there this morning and saying, oh, you know, for some reason, uh, I just I just uncovered this in the Greek this morning. Um, Fort Worth Pres is the only church in the world that can truly offer the sacrament. And if you want remission of sins, you've got to take it from me. Okay? Now, some of us would be like, Okay. Right. I, but then we start creating the you know, and then what, what will that lead to? Right. Um, so I would be getting my resume polished and heading out of here. Uh, but I would never do that. So that's the Waldensians. Uh, 1532, they joined the Protestant reform movement, Turn the page over. 1979, they merged with the Italian Methodist Church. This wasn't a good merger uh, for both well, for the Waldensians as the, the Methodist Church. Uh, focused more on social activity and did not see the same the same with them, uh, with Reformed theology, their views of Scripture, and those kinds of things. But this is just where they are at this point in time. All right, uh, Wycliffe and the Lollards. Uh, um, this is John Wycliffe. God fits the man for the place and the place for the man. There is an hour for the voice and a voice for the hour, as Charles H. Spurgeon said about John Wycliffe. Uh, To Wycliffe, we owe more than to any one person. Our English language, our English Bible, and our Reformed religion, says Mr. Burroughs. All right, Um, this is 14th century England as well. You've got to understand, worldliness in the church, as we've been talking about, bad teaching permeates throughout. You also have suffering in the nation at this point. You have the Black Death. You have the Hundred Years' War between England and France. And uh, in the midst of this... You have these jewels of of Oxford, which are, which John Wycliffe and John Huss are known as um, the morning stars, uh, or what they're referred to, I guess. Um, So, John Wycliffe was called the Jewel of Oxford. Yeah. So, there are these bright spots amongst a lot of um, tough things that are going on uh, as well. Um, I don't think I had any more. Oh, yeah. So I, I wanted to briefly, what, what were the things that John Whitcliffe, the Jewel of Oxford, what did he, what did he teach? Um, he, he taught that all authority, secular and ecclesiastical, is a gift of God and can be forfeited. It's one of the things that he taught. Um, the Bible is the preeminent authority to every Christian. And he believed that the Bible should be translated into the vernacular of the age, so English for him. Um, and of course, the church did not like this he didn't believe in transubstantiation and he actually called it idolatry because people began to worship the sign and not what the sign pointed to. As you can easily see, that's that's exactly what would happen if we made Fort Worth Prez the one place where you can, and and you see this throughout the world, like there's the the, the pilgrimages and Meccas that other religions have where this is a place where angels or saints have been seen to have been resurrected. They feel like there's power there. The place always is worshiped and becomes a place of worship and not what, those saints or those people point to. Same thing with the sacrament. The sacrament is the word, body and blood of Jesus in and of itself. It's no longer pointing to those things. It's, it's distorting that. So he thought it was idolatry. Preaching is, quote, the most precious activity of the church. And then he also taught that salvation is by grace. Um, a theme that Luther will pick up and Calvin as well later on, okay? Um, interesting enough, with John Wycliffe, you have the earthquake council in 1382. This this was a council that condemned John Wycliffe's teaching, and immediately after the council was over, there was a massive earthquake uh, in the area. Uh, Wycliffe died in 1384. His bones were exhumed by the Roman church in 1428, burned, and the ashes scattered in the nearby streams. Um, but I love this one quote here um, from historian Fuller. He says, They burned his bones to ashes and cast them into the swift, a neighbor, neighboring brook. The swift conveyed them to the Avon, the Avon uh, to the Severn, the Severn to the narrow seas, and they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of, the, of his doctrine, which is now dispersed the world over. Well, that's pretty good. Uh, okay, so that's Wycliffe. The other morning star there is John Huss. And Huss might be one of my favorites. Um, Huss was rector of the University of Prague. Um, he, influenced, he was influenced heavily by Wycliffe. The themes of his preaching were that Christ is the head of the church. So there's one head. It's not the pope. It's Christ. Um, that is a doctrine that, that the PCA holds to as well. And that Bible alone and grace alone are the major themes here. So we begin to start hearing these solas that we'll get into later on. Um, this, is, this, was, this was John Huss' belief. Um, John Huss was burned at the Council of Consonants on July 6, 1415. It was actually a trick. They invited him to come to the council to talk and to, uh, to give an opportunity to hear about his views. Um, but they, they tried him for, for her heresy, and they burned him there. Um, a sad, sad day for the church. But as um, Tertullian says, that the the blood of the, the the blood of the church, the blood of the martyrs, is the seed of the church. That's always the case uh, throughout church history. That the blood of those who uh, died for their faith in those areas is where the church explodes. It just is what happens, and it should be should be a lesson of ministry to us as well. That where we give ourselves, where we sacrifice ourselves, is where the church. Grows more, okay, whether that be physically or spiritually. Um, so that's that's John Huss. Uh, there's a monument in Prague with for John that says as an inscription: "Live for truth, fight for truth, and die for truth." Martin Luther in 1529 would say, "I have hitherto taught and held all the opinions of Huss without knowing it. We are all of us Hussites without knowing it. I do not know what to think for amazement." That is. Luther. Lastly, we get to a little um, unknown character, uh Savonarella. I'm saying that correctly. Um Savonarola. Savonarola. Savan. Savon. He's uh he's from Italy. Um, he was a reformer, believed many of the same things that that uh, Wycliffe and Huss did. Um, but he also was martyred. He was burned at the stake in 1498, and you see there, Luther was 14 at this time. So these are the things that are that are building, that are um, happening as are, are leading up to what we know as present-day Reformation. Okay. So with that, I want us to close here at the sort of at the, the doorstep of of, uh, of 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 Worms, uh, Worms, uh, Germany, and I want us to. Um, Just kind of take in what happened here with Luther. And I want us to also know that as we go throughout the next eight weeks, ten weeks, we're going to dive more into the Reformers themselves. All right. Um, And also let me note, next week, remember, we're in here, but we're listening to Jessica Harris not doing church history or the five solas. So April 17th, 1521, Martin Luther appears before Charles V in Worms, Germany. Before Luther was... Before Luther was the table of all these writings and Luther had written so much that uh, Charles actually didn't believe that it was him who had written all this stuff. But the point was, and Luther knew this coming to this meeting, that this was heresy to them and, and he knew it was expected. And so Charles asked him, do you want to recant, which is a very polite and, and nice way to say Please submit to my authority and let's move on. You're wasting our time. To Luther, there were, there was a lot more to be said than that. You know, there wasn't just uh, that there, there were things in here that weren't just doctrine. There was you know, writings on Christendom themselves, writings on the church. But the core of, 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 of that third component of the gospel was what Luther uh, was, was troubled with, his conscience. And so, in a moment of call it clarity, or a moment of God's intervention, he asked. If he could have a day to prepare a response, which completely frustrated everyone there, right? It's like we don't have time for this. Like this is let's let's, let's, let's move on. Let's recant, not move on. They granted him this day, and he goes and he prays and he just. I mean, it was a, a 24 hours of torture essentially of what he should do because he knows what's at stake. He knows that 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 if I if I recant, I'll be fine, but I will have rejected my Savior, Jesus. If I don't, this is probably it for me. And I need to know that going into it. So the next day on April 18, 1521, pressed to recant or not, Luther responds with the following, "...unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot..." And I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And in these words, Protestantism is born and the Reformation is ignited. Um, Luther's conscience was captive to the word of God, to the living, active voice of Scripture, Mark Knoll would say. And this is what sets the tone for the solas and for what the Reformation is really about, uh, of, 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 of the Word of God coming back as the central authority of all things, not the church, not the Pope, not men, uh, but Christ alone. And this is where um, everything is unleashed and the world is turned over on its, on, its, on its head. What will take place in the coming years, as you see there, and what we'll dive into over the weeks ahead, is a reforming of the church throughout Europe that had been brewing for years while men like Luther and Calvin and Knox received most of the attention and even credit for their work on reforming the church, none of it would have happened without the great cloud of witnesses, to quote Hebrews 12, such as Wycliffe and Huss and Savonarella, uh, who went before them, and even those who went before them. So here's our question and thought for the day. When we handle our Bibles, right, when we come into Wednesday Bible study, when we go to Sunday school, when we go into the sanctuary and we hear the preached word, when we turn on our Bible apps on our phone are we aware of the amount of blood stained on those pages? Not just the blood of Jesus for your sin, but also the blood of those followers who went after him to preserve that word so that you can have it. And I think one of the beauties of church history is it puts us in place with real men and women who gave everything for this, which is also a source of comfort too. But we need to know what we stand to lose as well if we are to sit there and claim Christ as our own. Uh, and, and 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 how how much better are we for that? Um, that is the question. So, what does the Word of God mean to you? And I don't ask that, you know, in a in a pious way. Well, oh, the Word of God is you uh, know it's great. I ask that in the sense of uh, I want you to think about that question as you digest the short amount of history that we've just gone through and what people have given up for it, and to ask yourself. You know, maybe even put yourself in their place. And certainly I believe that God calls men and women to specific places and specific times in history. And I pray that none of us would experience the persecution that the church did at this age. I wish that we would all live our days out in, in peace and, and tranquility, but um, well, nothing really good ever came of that, right? I'm just kidding. You know, but but to, to, to ask yourself, what, what, is it? what does that mean to value and to have the Word of God in that way? What does it mean to you? Uh, what are you willing to give up for it? Um, and um, I think it's a good place for us to, to and as well as the church doctrines, so to have a different light and different understanding of what doctrines are, are really for and about and how they preserve the church itself. So we'll leave it at that. Uh, I think it's a good place to stop as we uh, take up here in two weeks. Any questions, comments? Uh, We've got a few minutes here. Yes. Terrible, you know, if they didn't... I mean, they killed a whole bunch of people. The Latin American states? Well, countries, okay. Like Central America? Yeah. Okay. I mean, Mexico and, uh, you know, uh, there was terrible persecution for them that they wouldn't accept. Yeah, you mean, I'm not going to. Okay. Only because what I'm trying to do is is give us a little backstory for the Reformation and the Five Solas. Okay. There's a lot... You know, there's certainly I'm I'm missing a lot of things, um, but but this is that and that because that would come afterwards. Uh, that would that would become in the in the sailing of the New World and um, Spain looking to conquer everything and everyone and all the mess. That, not going to go in that. Uh, that would be good for a for for a whole church history class, I guess, to look at. But we're we're dealing with what is the state of the church? It's politics and theology leading up to this moment in history where we have uh, grabbed our theology from, essentially. And and what is the Reformation really? What is it what is it going is it going is it something new or is it going back to something true? And I would say it's the latter. So is that helpful? <laughs> I'm kind of curious about, you know, you have uh version stake, Witliff bird at stake, and so on. And you know, you notice now that Martin Luther was 14 when, when Huss was burned at the stake. 30, he was 37, I guess 23 years later, right? He had this challenge to him. Mm-hmm. They didn't burn him at the stake. No. So there's a wonderful history of Martin Luther. We are going to get to that. Um I was just wondering, or had the church... Hold on society to the point
1: that they didn't
0: get wondering why. It, it, well, it's, it's really a miracle that he, how he got out. Um, he was actually uh, snuck out. He, was, he escaped by, with a friend, I'm missing his name, um, and retreated. And they had him in isolation because there was a, a warrant out for him, We us put it that way. It is there where he translates the entire Bible into German. Uh, it's also there where he writes hymns like, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, you know, wondering if this is going to be it. So you get the, you get the real, you know, the richness of, of these things that we still carry on today. But his history we'll get into in the coming weeks. And certainly John Calvin and John Knox and these other folks, as they begin to formulate these rich doctrines, these solas. But, um, yes. You almost feel like if John Hus was heard at the stake, the Reformation would have started with him. Sure, because Absolutely. Wasn't at the Martin Luther is the, right of the beginning of the Reformation. right, right, and in that way, we all sort of feel like husses right We just sort of missed out on this big opportunity, and you know our lives were given for something else, but absolutely not in glory, um, you know I'm sure we will know much of John Huss uh, as we do, even Martin Luther, but yeah, it's exactly right, and we need to be appreciative and thankful um, you know and, and it's wonderful just to think about all of the men and women of the church. Who have gone before us that you'll never hear about, history will never hear about, you know, but they really did pave the way for what we have here and what we do, and um, yeah, it's a sweet thing. Anything else? All right, let me. Oh, Real quick, sure. I think it's really interesting just to look at the history, and you know, all history is kind of like uh, a warning and a blessing to us in our day and what are the similar things that we have going on and what, what is unique to us and like be wearing being aware of the footfalls but also knowing that we are also unique in history in some ways because of our you know we have the Bible on a right you know on an app versus mm-hmm. paper, etc. And um I don't know, just just kind of superimposing history on us slightly. There's a lot to be yeah. The same, going the same Before we open that can of worms, I'll. Well, I think we 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 will. I think it would be good for want, us. I don't want to open a can of worms. I, I want to. <laughs> I want to open one can, okay, one just to can can give us some food one, for thought, yes. uh, because I think that we'll address this later you know, as we go through. But you know, I think there's there's a lot to be said about <clears throat> um, from out of this history, appreciating even our founders. If you want to become. You know, if you want to be not a nationalist, but just appreciate the history of our forming of our country, I mean, they, they this was more fresh to them than it was to us by you know any stretch of the imagination. And to give to create a land where there's the freedom of religion and to pursue uh, one's conscience is an unheard of, uh, unheard of thing. And we need to treasure and value that. Um, I would say one of the one of the one of the errors on that side, what it's caused, it's always causing some type of distortion is the hyper-individualism that we experience in our country. So we don't have a king who's dictating things. We become our own king, and so we have to fight against uh, what that freedom has lent itself to and, um, and not wanting to be connected to a body, right? Not wanting even our bodies and our churches, I mean, to be connected to other bodies and have authority over us, which is really the same problem uh, of, that, that they had of not submitting to the authority of God and His church. So it's, it's always the same things. It's just served up a little differently. But that will be a teaser. We'll keep coming back to that. It's a great question. though. Um, okay, let me pray for us and we will uh, dismiss. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the, the preservation of, of the history. To know about these men and to know about these women and to know about these families who uh, endured so much, uh, who gave their lives the ultimate price for um, the purity of your church and your word, for something they believed in that was greater than themselves. Um, and we're thankful that we have that History and that uh, documentation um, to know the shoulders that we stand on, uh, even as a church in Fort Worth that um, is only 20 years old. Um, we pray, Lord, that you would use these men and women and use this history to, uh, to shape us, um, to, to see ourselves as connected to what they are doing, and to embrace that, and to see uh, and investigate for our own uh, selves what it is that they were truly fighting for, uh, that we may um, come out of that a church of people um, who understand and see who Jesus is more because of that. So we pray for those things, and we ask that that would be true of this class. We pray next week uh, for Jessica, though, as she comes to talk to us um, about raising daughters and um, and, and, and important uh, aspects of life in that regard. And and then as we come back together to talk about Uh, To continue our class, would you be with us? And go with us now as we head into worship. Uh, Be pleased and glorified by the brokenness of our singing and our our thoughts. um, Only because of the blood of Jesus, we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you all.